Something we've all seen one too many times is, of course, the verbal abuse and trolling that can take place on social platforms. Now, if your social media manager's ever been on the receiving end of abuse like that, then you'll know it can be really hard to decide how to respond. You don't want to endorse them and you don't want to let them get away with it either. And of course, it takes its toll on social media professionals, both emotionally and trying not to let a few bad players ruin posts and work that you're really proud of. Now, to talk about this today, we're joined by Dr. Claire Hardacre, who's the Senior Lecturer in Forensic Corpus Linguistics at Lancaster University and an expert in the subject of trolling and negative discourse on social media. Yeah, you've covered a lot in this really hard-hitting episode with Claire. And one of the standouts for me particularly was a segment on social media pylons and the comparison with gladiators, whereby everyone seems to love to witness these arguments and drama happen on social, you know, Rebecca Vardy, for example, but no one would ever want to be the victim in this. It's that feeling of if everyone's doing it, then you can get away with it, which would actually never happen in real life or on the streets. You can expect to hear more on this, the platform features that enable these types of behaviours and why anonymity isn't the answer to our problems on social media. So Claire, welcome to Social Minds. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As um, our listeners will know, every week we start off with an overarching question. And this week, that is, what do brands need to know in order to navigate online abuse? Okay, well, the way that I like to think about this is there is a law known as Godwin's Law, um, which some of you will have heard of, um, which is that as an online discussion gets longer, no matter what the subject, the probability of a comparison involving Hitler or Nazis basically approaches one. Um, and the relevance to this topic today is that I, I call this in my head Hardacre's Law. And maybe somebody else has already coined it. I don't know. But uh, as an online account gets bigger, as it gets more successful, as you basically take up more oxygen in the room, the probability that you're going to receive abuse also seems to approach one. Um, of course, in practice, that shouldn't happen. It, that's not how an, a nice world um, functions. You know, people treat each other well and so on. But the practical reality is there are people out there who may be, for instance, anti-consumerism, anti-capitalist, anti-your brand of tea, whatever it is you're selling or doing, someone out there is going to take offence. And as you become bigger and more popular and your message gets out there, those people are going to end up seeing you and possibly even making a beeline for you. I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of brands, Brands these days will be familiar with some form of online abuse, be it general negativity, criticism um, or trolling. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to know how they can distinguish between trolling and other forms of verbal abuse, like, you know, like genuine criticism. Yeah, this can be really difficult. I mean, even for me, um, having looked at God knows how much abuse now, um, it can be a really difficult line to draw. So, the problem is you can have someone who is, who's got a real complaint underneath it, but they have blown up at you. Maybe they got into work late that morning and they got shouted at by their boss and they're really angry. What they're angry about is something completely different. But your brand, you present this really easy target to vent some of that frustration on. And the actual complaint is very trivial, but they just completely blow up. Or you could have someone who's just a genuine time waster. They have no interest in having this result. They just want to have a go at you. They just maybe put on a spectacle for their friends to laugh at and cheer them along. Distinguishing what might be going on in the background in that person's mind is really, really hard. I mean, all you can realistically do is look for the play out in the, we look for the play out in the interaction when we're doing sort of linguistic analysis. So what did you do? And then what did they do in response? And does it seem like this is a continuing bad faith discussion where you give a really reasonable response and they continue to not be satisfied. They continue to pick holes. So 
what I would say is in some cases, you're just never going to know. You will not come to a conclusive answer. You'll, you'll always be thinking, was that person actually sincere? You know, did they really mean this stuff? Or were they just being awful? Were they just killing some time? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't bog yourself down too much in determining every case to the categorical extent that you can. I would just try and come up with general principles of like, look, we've tried this much. We've given it our best shot. It's time to move on. Now, I do have another question I will go into in just a minute. But first, I think it's important for us to explore psychologically what is going on uh, for these people. You talk about the kind of day they might have had. I mean, um, in your experience and the research you've done, what have you found motivates people to lash out and bully, particularly brands and figures of authority um, like influencers on social media? There can actually be quite a wide array of uh, reasons that people pop out. Sometimes you can infer it from what they're doing and sometimes they just explicitly say their, you know, their various motivations. So for some, it's just pure boredom. They, they're stuck at work in an office. They're bored out of their mind. This is just a way to kill some time. It's not a very nice way of killing time, but to them, that's what they've chosen. For other people, what they're fighting about isn't what they're fighting about. They're angry at you because they're angry at something that happened at home, for instance. It's just a venting of frustration. Other people might feel like they're writing social wrongs, you know, the sort of I mentioned the anti-capitalism, the anti-consumerism. They may feel that whatever your brand is doing is immoral in some way or, you know, counters to some ideals that they have. And they may feel like they're fighting the good fight and, you know, trying to uh, make the world a better place. So there's sort of a martyrism type thing going on there. Um, some people might just not realize that, yeah, maybe they had a legitimate complaint, but maybe they're carrying it a bit too far because the online environment really tends towards less inhibited behavior. Mm. One of the big social factors that controls our behavior is how the people around us see us, how they view us. And if you're in public shouting at some you know, poor barista in your local coffee shop, the people around you are probably judging you and you're probably aware of that and sensing it and you might bring your behavior you down. But if you're online and there's no one there to kind of do that judgmental side eye at you and maybe, you know, sort of say that you've really stepped over the boundaries now, it's so much easier to just keep going and just keep going and escalating and escalating. So there can be a lot of um, sense of, actually, no, this is a completely valid way to respond to this. And I'm obviously in the right and I have a legitimate complaint. And there's this sort of a, a phrase that no single snowflake feels responsible for the avalanche. What they may not realize is that they're one of 10,000 people who've piled on your account that day for whatever reason. Um, and that honestly, you're just completely overwhelmed. To them, they're just that one person, you know, attacking you for whatever reason. The other issue that I would also factor in there is that brands in particular can really look and feel anonymous. It's it's not a person, it's a like a thing, it's like a brick wall. Yeah. And you're sort of throwing your abuse at this um, unfeeling object almost. So it's really easy to rationalize bad behavior. If you don't feel like you're talking to a person, or even if you do, you think, well, they're paid for this. You know, it can be really easy to turn it into something more acceptable than it actually is. Yeah. So it can, when you take all of those factors together, the disinhibition, you know, the bad day, not realizing that they're one of many, feeling like this isn't a real person, it starts to get really easy to go a long way down the road towards abuse. Yeah, no, definitely. And we've seen that a lot recently. And I think, or I hope, a bit more awareness um, in the space about who is behind these brand accounts. Because yes. I understand that, you know, they are looking at a logo. It can be can be easy to separate them from the person running it. But yes. very often what you'll find um, is it's a young 
young person in an entry-level position, probably one of the first jobs of their career. Um, And they find themselves responsible for not only this brand's entire reputation, but handling these situations and doing it gracefully and doing it without implicating the brand. And that can be very difficult to navigate. It's a really difficult tightrope to walk. And at the same time, you're also trying to maintain what is your brand's personality? What is its image? And you don't want to get bogged down into your own personal feelings of how mean this person's been or or whatever's happening. Um, So you're trying to balance a lot of competing agendas. It's, yeah, it's really hard work. Yeah. I mean, brands have tried. uh, I mean, I'm dehumanizing it myself now when I say (laughs) brands, let's say like the social media manager, the person running this account, you know, people have tried ignoring them, retaliating to them. um, And like we saw with the person who runs the Yorkshire Tea Twitter account, um, who was having a really bad time of it. Yeah, that was awful. Trying to appeal to um, their human nature. Um, But I'm interested to hear from you, Claire. What do you think um, is the best and sort of most proven way uh, to deal with these kind of people? Um, Okay, so there is no one perfect way because different individuals have different personalities, they have different strengths. And some days you might come into the office and what was a great strategy yesterday is just not going to work today because you're having a terrible day or whatever. So what I do when when I um, sort of talk about these things is I tend to say there's like these three or four major strategies pick what works for you on the day and in that particular context, because there's some contexts where some of these responses are just not going to work. So one major strategy is the straightforward silence. And I know that this is like the oldest one alive. Do not feed the trolls. And everyone goes, oh my God, is this actually a good response? Well, let me try and sell it to you a little bit. So on the pro side, trolls can't play troll tennis with you if you refuse to hit the ball back. You know, there's only so many times you can hit the ball into the void and get no response and then you just get bored. And routinely when I look over the sort of, um, when when there's like a major blow up of an an instance of abuse, when an account comes in for loads of abuse, the fastest trail off is for the accounts that opt for silence. And so that person might just step away from Twitter for two days and the the trail off of the abuse is really fast because it's just boring. There's nobody responding. It's just complete silence. The downside is people tend to feel really disempowered. They feel like they've capitulated, which is really, to me, that's like, that's probably a a method of framing it in your head to make you realize that actually, no, you have made an active choice. You've done this thing. For me, it's the most powerful checkmate move you can play in this game, if you want to think of it as a game, because your account's time and attention and its focus is really valuable, right? Especially if you have a big account, and what you choose to point that account at, you're saying this is a valuable thing. This is a, this is something that we think is worth engaging with. You're kind of bestowing a privilege. Mm. So if you choose to decide that that person is not worth your time, that interaction is not what your brand is about, you've actually made a really powerful choice. You've moved on. So silence to me is actually the checkmate move. The other one, of course, is you can respond sincerely, you can respond calmly, you can try to understand this sort of, um, try to humanize yourself, try to humanize them, try to get back to that real interaction between two people. And if there's a genuine complaint, maybe you might be able to dig that out and actually make some progress. You're going to look professional, you're going to look like you're on the moral high ground, but that can be exhausting, that can be really hard, that can be almost a bit vulnerable. You're sort of saying, come on, let's talk about this like real people. And you may make no progress. If it's a bad actor, you're, you're still not going to make any progress anyway. So the final approach um, of the three that I'll go through is the James Blunt approach, um, also <laughs> used by the likes of Wendy's um, and other brands, which is where someone tweets something ridiculous at you and it's abusive or horrible and you zap back with something witty or funny or whatever. Um, now, that is a very risky strategy. So like I said, on different days, this is not a good response because if you're feeling a bit edgy that day and you might say something a bit too much, maybe yeah. don't choose that. It can backfire spectacularly. 
and it can be doubly counterproductive. The troll might continue trying the discussion. Mm. Depends on how well you nuked them they in the first place. They might be better at it than you as well. They might be better than you. They might outplay you, and then you're going to look a bit daft. Um, so you need, if you're going to do it, you need to drop a nuke. You need to absolutely wipe them out. And then, so they may they may continue this debate. And then James Blunt actually has lots of people who now deliberately troll him because they want to get roasted. Yeah. So you may then actually kind of incur more kind of pretendy type trolling. But do you really want to deal with that as a potential consequence of that account. So none of the three responses, none of these three major responses is perfect. But what you might do is shift strategies depending on quite what's happening and how you feel that day and who you are. I think it's crucial, like you said um, before, Claire, as well about contacts, because, for example, a brand like KFC can do that and do do that really well. Um, But, you know, if you're... WWF or cancer research, it's going to be wildly inappropriate. Isn't exactly. It? <laughs> Macmillan's not going to be able to zap out like a, a sharp reply at someone because that's going to seem really counter to what they're all about. So, yes, yeah. it's definitely you've got to take it into account with your brand as well. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the actual platforms that this often plays out on. Um, because obviously, uh, as marketeers, everyone listening will be aware of how the platforms uh, reward, you know, certain types of engagement and validate certain behaviors. But what kind of uh, platform mechanisms enable this trolling behavior um, by rewarding them uh, with this validation? So I'm looking at like, specific features that you found. Uh, I mean, it, it cannot be overstated. The gamification of social media is really powerful in the sort of driving towards whether it's, you know, really funny content or really outrageous content, extremes of content. So whether it's because it's through the trending topics list, because something is very popular and it's risen to the top, uh, top of the trending topics list, whether it's because uh, the algorithm is pushing popular content at you. So in the Twitter timeline, now you get content randomly pushed at you. I keep getting basketball. I have no interest in basketball, but stuff keeps uh, surfacing because lots of people are suddenly just liking these random tweets. Uh, between people getting lots of likes, clout chasing specifically is a really serious problem. It distorts the effect so that you get this very small instance that gets warped right to the front of everyone's perception and more ordinary stuff gets pushed to the back. It basically can turn what would otherwise be a really small matter into this huge bonfire. So maybe a small unfortunate thing has happened and next thing everyone is is on board that now. They're all like debating or arguing about mm. it. So one of the really serious problems, of course, is deliberate clout chasers. So you put your clout chasing accounts who, you know, they might be um, retweeting, for instance, on Twitter, they might be retweeting content from, oh, look what this awful thing that this brand did. So um, a recent example was Harvard supposedly sent out a rejection letter to a student. Um, and the, I think the the, the basis of the rejection was supposedly because of the way that they'd been tweeting on the uh, on the internet prior to that, and so they'd withdrawn this offer. It was completely fake, but the that satisfaction of outrage just overwhelmed most people's precautions to check and see whether that was in fact real. Loads of people retweeted it. Lots of clout chasing accounts retweeted the content without even attributing it to the original account. When it was shown to be fake, the original account deleted the tweet, but all of the retweets, all of the recreations of that content exist, and people don't go back to check and see what the reality of the story is. Yeah. So that lives on, and we have lots of examples of that with many other brands where, you know, some completely spurious complaint, this completely fake thing that never happened has been tweeted or published or whatever, and that story just boils on and on and on forever because people are chasing that clout, they're chasing that impact. Mm-hmm. And something we've seen a lot recently is um, these pile-on 
bonds where it yes. becomes almost like a herd behavior and everyone's everyone wants to join in. I mean, we've seen recently um, YouTube just disabled their dislike button, but you can still press it. Um, yes. They're just hiding the like counts basically to try and prevent these mass pylons when they try and drive the dislikes as high as possible. Um, and we've seen it happen with celebrities, you know, other people's uh, fans, if there's a rivalry jump in one of their comments and they're completely flooded with abuse. Um, you <laughs> Fandoms know, are amazing. They, I mean, it's it's sort of incredible power, right? But when it's abused like that, it can be quite yes. scary. Um, and there is this sort of morbid desire for them to, uh, you know, sort of join in and watch this person get absolutely torn apart. And you know, in the line of work that we do, this driving of mass behavior is sort of the holy grail. It's something everyone's trying to achieve yes. for the positive, of course. But we've seen it work negatively too. Yes. So I guess I'm wondering, is it possible to rewire this herd behavior and or is it something that's just so rooted in our human nature that it's always going to be an issue? You can look back all the way through history to, for instance, the Colosseum, um, where we gathered in tens of thousands, I think it might be more than that, uh, 40,000, I think, to watch gladiators fight to the death. And then the Hippodrome of Constantinople, where we would go and watch executions. Um, and even just a few hundred years ago, where like the weekly hanging would be the event where people would um, amass. And then other things, like if you look at our top, rated movies of all time is Shawshank Redemption, Godfather, Parts 1 and 2, um, top rated TV shows of all time, Breaking Bad and Band of Brothers is a quiz at the end of this. Top selling games of all time include Grand Theft Auto 5, PUBG Battlegrounds. Uh, what else? Um, think about the Olympics and the pugilistic sports that we consume like boxing and martial arts and fencing. The theme running through all of that is we love consuming violence. We love consuming aggression. We don't like it happening to us. Obviously, that's pretty horrible. But we are in there for the spectacle. We want to watch it. It's a really ugly facet of the human nature, but it's it's a, it bears out across pretty much everything. You can look at Game mm -hmm. of Thrones, Hunger Games. There's so many ways in which we actively pursue and seek the consumption of violence and aggression. And looking for that online is completely unsurprising when you take it into account of our long history. So what the internet basically provides is this incredible modern day coliseum where someone's had an awful day, they go online, they find a target, it happens to be your brand, and they throw a metaphorical right hook in your face because they've just had a really crappy morning or whatever's happened. Um, and the risk of consequence of being punched back effectively is very slim because brands generally don't fight back. This is just a faceless thing. It's not a person. You've got all of those rationalization strategies again. So you have all of that long-standing instinctive enjoyment of aggression and violence. You put it on the internet and it tends in this general direction. So we go for the outrage, we go for the shocking headlines, we go for that content that's really like, oh my God, is, you know, could that possibly be real? So can we rewire, uh, rewire that? We'd be talking about rewiring probably our limbic systems in our brains or something. It would probably take hundreds of thousands I'm of years. I'm looking for like a mass scale Pavlovian response <laughs> exactly. where they just get, they get like, shamed or punished every time they do it. So they do it less and less and less. I don't know. I mean, honestly, it probably it would take updating our human operating system over the course of a hundred thousand years. This operating system in our brains hasn't changed much in about that length of time. Mm -hmm. um, so would there be ways that you can make people be good and nice. I mean, the other way to think about it is we've had laws against, you know, robbery, murder, violence, literally laws and punishments. And we've yeah. had those in place for hundreds of years. People still rob, people still fight and are violent, people still murder. So can we stop that? I don't think so. Yeah. Can we make it 
less rewarding, probably. But I think yeah. it's going to be a really tough uphill climb. Mm. I mean, you talk about the like operating system of our brains and not being able to change that. But I think one operating system that we can still change is, you know, the way these platforms work. And oh, yeah, um, definitely. We see a lot of what I call like vanity features. So like hiding likes and turning off comments and that kind of thing where yes. the algorithms and the mechanisms still remain very much the same because obviously, you know, to uproot all of that is to uproot their entire business model. But I mean, let's talk about consequences because, um, you know, when the Euro 2020 happened, we saw an absolute torrent of online abuse towards yes. racial abuse towards um, a lot of our players. And of course, that viral petition went round uh, as it does every so often um, with a lot of people proposing the solution of anonymity, um, you know, getting rid of that to stop online abuse. This idea that if you attach your ID to your social media profile, um, then you won't go in for online abuse because you'll be held accountable for your actions. Yes. Do we think that that is a, an effective way to stop curbing online abuse? My honest answer, and the, the very short version is not at all, not even remotely. If it worked, um, Facebook would have no abuse on it. And Facebook is an amazing place to go for data if you want some. Uh, similarly, um, anyone who's ever been on Nextdoor for more than a few minutes, not only your name, but also kind of somewhat your address and location. People are mm. unbelievable on Nextdoor. Um, there's a Twitter account called Best of Nextdoor, uh, Nextdoor if you want to go and see some of the examples of that. But there's actually more logistical reasons anyway. So you would have to, you wouldn't be able to just do it in a single country. It would have to be global because the internet is global. If there's abuse coming in from some anonymous guy from somewhere else, like what have you actually achieved with making all of your country, you know, disclose its identity? So you'd have to standardize ID around the world. You'd have to have one standard form of ID or an acceptable form of ID in every single country around the world. And everyone would have to have that ID. Where would all of this information about these IDs be stored? Like, how would it be at the moment you logged onto the computer? Would it be at the moment you went on your social media account? Do you really want all the social media accounts to have access to everyone's ID so that they can validate everybody? Like, how are you going to validate this? How would all of this information then be defended? Because that would be a very, very tempting resource for hackers to jump into. You can imagine what they could do with that information. Who would fund this? Who would police this? Who would enforce this? How would you stop fraud? Um, and then let's face it, some governments cannot be trusted with their own people, let alone the well-being of others. Mm. Would you really want all the governments around the world to have access to all of these different groups? On social media, people also reveal things about, for instance, their sexuality, their religion, their ethnicity, their political beliefs. And you would be suggesting potentially giving the government or the social media platforms access to that. And then you are looking at potential mass atrocities down the line as mm -hmm. either the government or the social media platform leaks it or the government gets hold of it or, or some variation of that. So when you actually start to try to put this problem together as a real solution, it's an absolute non-starter. I mean, imagine LGBTQIA communities around the world knowing that there might be something about them online that they've posted that might get back to a government that would execute them. Yeah. Um, having your kids with their identity disclosed online make, would, would just make them a prime target. It's just the risks and the harms would infinitely outweigh the benefits by a, by a very long shot. So... That's not to say that we shouldn't try to curb online abuse. Absolutely, I think we should, but this would not be a solution. This would actually introduce, for me, far more problems that would be ridiculously more serious than the actual issue that we'd be trying to fix. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think I think that suggestion comes from a very comfortable uh 
position. Uh, you know, it it's, does, it's yeah. celebrities who are who are sharing this because it seems like a it must seem like a very easy option. Um, you know, to a problem uh, that's that's bothering them predominantly. But as you said, think about the way it's affecting marginalized communities. You're assuming in the first place that everyone has access to ID. Um, and yeah, like you said, social media can be a safe place for a lot of a lot of people who uh, you know aren't finding that in their country and don't trust their government and you know with it, with good right. But let's talk a little bit more about consequences then, because you said something earlier that it's it's this validation right that spurs yes. it on. So we'd assume that the solution would be to shame people in some way. Mm-hmm. I think it worked quite well for Yorkshire Tea. Um, you know, their response being putting a face, a human face to this brand. Um, and it got that much attention and that many people joined in um, that if you saw that and that was you who'd done that, I mean, you'd like to think if you've got any sort of conscience, you'd feel bad and maybe not do it again. It's So for me, there's, there's a potential way forward in that, in that you humanize and you make it clear you're not just speaking at a brand at this sort of brick wall. But what you don't want to do is inadvertently step into the realms of doing the very thing that you yourself are angry about effectively because mm. in some cases what you'll have is a kid who's made a really bad judgment call that day because you don't know who's behind the account it could be a 14 year old who's just done something really silly and um, i have many examples in my class handouts that i use where people have done something really you know as the complete aberration to them they would never normally do that they've made a bad call that day what you want to do is have that fine line between showing look there's a real person who's going to feel real feelings if you do this versus you don't then want to turn that entire machine on a specific individual because then how are you any better than the very thing that you're trying to stop? So for me, um, if you're going to try to fix this and it's, I don't think you can fire a silver bullet and just completely annihilate abuse overnight. It's never going to happen. But if you want to fix this, you've got to go through way more. So it's got to be every possible level of intervention. So how we literally raise children right now and how they use the internet, how parents are educated because lots of parents don't feel like they really understand what their kids are doing online. Teachers um, are in the same boat often. They, they're, you know, Kids are doing stuff online. They don't really understand what's going on. Um, teaching individual users, these are real people. Like This isn't just some faceless brand. Getting these wider social norms of acceptable behavior in place so that if people laugh about having been mean to a brand, other people will not react in a positive way. They'll be like, well, that's kind of you know crappy behavior. The platforms themselves, not pushing the, the more abusive content, broader policies, whether that's in education or in the workplace. And then things like this online harms bill legislation that comes in to basically enforce when you've reached such a critical level that it's beyond you know, a, a classroom policy, that you can enforce actual um, punishments and sanctions against people if they still continue to go too far. Yeah. I mean, let's talk of the platforms um, because Twitter has, I think, the worst reputation for it. I'm not, I'm not saying it earns that, but you know, widely it's it's known for for having a troll problem. But which platform, in your opinion, has the biggest troll problem, um, and then which is doing the most to combat that issue? These are really difficult questions to answer. So all I can do at this point is speculate, and even my speculation is going to be typically academic. So. It's really difficult to say because none of them wants to wave the flag and go, we have the most trolls. No surprise. They, you know, they all want to basically tell you about what they're doing to tackle trolling, what they're doing mm. to tackle abuse, but they don't want to say how big the problem is. No one wants to come out with figures and say, oh yeah, we have like 20 billion trolls on our site because that's just going to be supremely bad PR. 
One of the things that has bothered me was firstly how slow the response has been uh, from the early years. Of, like, I, I still remember when Twitter had no abuse function, like reporting abuse was just not a thing that you could do. I mean, that's yeah. not even that long ago. And then they kind of came up with a report abuse function and then people abused it, which was, you know, magical. And then they said, we're so inundated, we don't even know how to respond to all of the abuse reports. And it was this very painful process of kind of waking up to the reality of what humans will do when given a system. And then the thing that bothered me secondarily in some of the responses has been this very cynical application of solutions where it's something that looks very good and you get press releases and look what we're doing. And then you actually dig into the reality of, for instance, hiding likes and dislikes, um, changing how the algorithm processes certain content. And you mm. find it has absolutely no effect whatsoever. Or in some cases, it's actually made abuse slightly worse. Or in, in one rare case, it's made it a lot worse, where people have actually not benefited. There's been all of the PR and they've been able to claim that they've done lots of good things, but the actual reality on the ground has been no discernible difference, usually for the average user. So it's that sort of balance between the platform, we've talked about the gamification, they want the profit that comes from the gamification of the site, they want the traffic, they want the retweets or the reposts or whatever. Um, but by taking steps that would actively mitigate abuse, that will sometimes have an effect on the profit margin, on the bottom line. It yeah. will mitigate how much certain content is shared. If you have to give a, a, an average corporation a choice between a profit margin and you know some kind of thing that will impact that, mm. there's going to be a tendency to want to choose the profit. Yeah, of course. We see it a lot with these vanity features again. But what, what strikes me and one example I'll share is what we've seen uh, since the pandemic. And uh, we saw it again, you know, it comes around at election time. The ability that these platforms have to move fast when the pressure's put in the right places. Yes. Somehow they were able to detect any mention of COVID-19, any mention of vaccinations, any mention of the word pandemic, anything vaguely referring to it, immediately you get a warning flag up on your post. Yep. I saw that happen and I thought... If you can do that, which we know fully they're capable of doing, mm -hmm. then why was it not just as possible, for example, going back to Euro 2020, to pick up on the use of the monkey emoji in a racist context? Of course they know how to do that because they they, they can pick up on emoji context if they're looking at sexual predators, um, mm -hmm. for example. Like That's something that they do know how to do. And so it does feel like very um, specific you know, at times where they're choosing to act and choosing um, not to act. And it's interesting as well that in the COVID context, it's only win-win-win because if they move fast and they do this thing, if there's no loss of users or minimal loss of users. Everyone's going to celebrate that and say, what a great thing that they're doing. Um, but if you have um, this sort of, you know, like like you said, with the, the monkey emoji or whatever, um, you then run into issues of freedom of expression and people have the right to say whatever they want privately if this is private or if they conceive of it as private. And that then starts to run into issues with users potentially leaving that site and going to other sites and thus you get your profit margin issue again. Mm -hmm. So it's like you said, the, the the ones that will be chosen and given priority, you can usually kind of trace it through to what's going to have an impact on the profit line. No, definitely. But I think, you know, I speak for myself and probably a lot of brands listening that I don't think we want racist and abusive followers. No, I agree. I, I completely if, agree. If enough big accounts and like big voices banded together, um, then the platforms would have less choice because, of course, with COVID, that's what we saw them respond to is that enormous pressure um, yes. where they're left with no choice but to act. But let's let us end on more of a positive note for, <laughs> yeah. for those social media managers listening, you know, whether yes. they're just starting out or they've been doing this for quite some time. Mm -hmm. 
What would you say to those who are struggling to navigate this online abuse that they're facing? Um, okay, so I probably have um, about five things I would say. Let's see if it turns out to be five. Who knows? Um, I think I have about five things I would say. So firstly, whatever happens, the abuse is not your fault. I cannot underscore that enough. Sometimes people feel like, well, I tweeted something that was a bit risky. I tweeted a joke and it backfired. Is it fine for people to robustly debate with you, to make a complaint, to have a strong pushback about something, to highlight something problematic? Absolutely fine. Is it fine for them to send you abuse? No. So abuse is never your fault. You are not the issue there. If someone's sending you abuse, the issue is them. The second thing that I would say is that you have choices. So you do not have to engage with somebody or with everybody all the time. And if you start to think someone is a bad faith actor, cut your losses. I would move on. I would leave that conversation. If you don't like blocking people or if there's a policy against blocking people, get good with the mute button. Because you, like I said, your attention, your time, your focus for your account, that's a privilege. Don't you know, throw it away on people who are just not interested in you know, any actual meaningful discussion. Another thing I would say is take regular breaks. And the, the, the way that I think of this is always, whenever I get my module evaluation uh, questionnaires in from my students, I get about sort of four or 500 a year. And I'll get like, you know, 499, let's imagine, that are all like, oh, Claire is amazing, Claire is wonderful. And I get one that will say, oh, she did that really boring lecture. I hated it. And that one evaluation will just annihilate the effects of all of the good evaluations. And it's the same with social media. You might get 200, 300, 500 great messages on one person will say something a bit snide and that's the thing that will stay with you. The mm. the effect of the, the negative content is so disproportionate. So take breaks, just step away from it, give yourself that distance. And also within that, remember that the online abusers tend to be a really small, very loud community. The, the general good users, the overall net content of the internet seems to be good users, proactive, pro-social people. So don't let the, the noisiness of the little horrible ones drown out all the good stuff. Um, the next thing I'd say is never reply during a really strong emotion, whether you're really happy or, as may be the case with abuse, really angry or really upset. Never reply during that moment. Write your reply down if you want to, but not in the platform itself. Um, put it in notes, put it somewhere else, write it down on paper, give it 24 hours, come back, reread your reply and see if you still want to uh, actually send it. Every time I have ever done this, I have never sent that actual message. I've either mm -hmm. modified the message or I've deleted it completely. Yeah. So that distance and that cooling and calming time can be really useful. I think just give yourself 24 hours to be your better self. And finally, you can always change strategies. So if you've been trying a strategy and it doesn't feel like it's working for you, try a new strategy. Mix it up, see if something new works. Um, but the first one is probably the most important. The abuse is not your fault. You did not make the abuse happen. The abuser made the abuse happen. Very important to say there as well. And I'll add for any of our listeners who are in management positions or leadership positions, please support your staff. Oh my God, um, yes. Look out for what they're going through um, and, you know, treat this as a real issue because it yes. can be very detrimental to people's well-being. But thank you so much, Claire, um, for speaking that's to okay. us today. I think that's been really valuable. Thank you so much. Wow. What an intriguing episode there with Claire. I think one of the, the main parts for me was the topic surrounding the Euros and obviously the racist abuse that the England players suffered there. I've been so interested in this this topic now for a while. I think it all kind of came to a head at the Euros. Would you agree? Definitely. 
And, you know, as me and Claire touched on there, it's something that the platforms can absolutely account for ahead of time. The fact that we've seen with the pandemic, anytime you mention COVID, it's flagged in mm. any context and they can't pick up emojis being used in racist context. Of course they can. They just didn't. So, <laughs> I mean, it was interesting to hear Claire talk a lot about the way that, you know, different platform features actually enable a lot of this behavior. We always say uh, emotion drives action. It's it's what makes you share posts on social. And some of these emotions can be extremely extreme. Um, and it's not always it's not always a good thing on perhaps time to think about what kind of behavior we're actually encouraging by, you know, following that philosophy with our own content. Yeah, there's so many thoughts and theories flying around on how we actually stop this. You know, I think the the one that I subscribe to most was probably the anonymity one, whereby, you know, you've had to submit an idea or a passport. But listening to Claire there actually isn't the answer, is it? Mm, it comes from uh, quite a deep-seated place of privilege, I mm. think, when, you know, you see celebrities like Katie Price and Alfie Days are the ones sharing the petition. And it has the best of intentions, of course it does. But when you look at the implications that Claire yeah. mentioned, like, you know, protecting your identity um, from overseas governments, uh, governments that penalize you for your lifestyle. Also, the fact that not everyone has access to ID. Um, it's not yeah. that viable. What she actually said, and what I agree with, was, you know, the reason that this is happening is because there isn't that same social consequence that you have in real life, right? So actually, the way to solve this would be to create the same kind of shame that you would get if you behave that way in real life to a real person. Let's look back to the Yorkshire Tea example where the social media manager behind the account came out and said, hello, I'm a real person. Yeah. Obviously got the support of the entire industry and a lot of the public. And that specific troll was never heard from again. Yeah, I guess it, you, you can look at Twitter, for example, and you look at James Blunt, you know, replying to his followers in the manner that he does, that really like take the mick sort of manner. And then you've got it with brands such as Paddy Power and Wendy's. We see them all over doing the same. But then charities and other organisations, you know, Cancer Research, for example, they can't do that. So as a brand, ultimately it's up to you, but there's clearly risk associated to these different approaches. There are steps being taken by these platforms and it's good to see, but clearly there's a very, very, very long way to go here.